in your book, you talk about meritocracy and how meritocracy is this idea that if you're rich, it's because you're good. And if you're poor, it's because you're bad. And in the criminal justice system, we call this um, neoliberalism, where it's like, oh, if you are a criminal, it's because you're bad. And if you're not a criminal, it's because you're good. And not recognizing the complexity that goes into it, who gets targeted as a criminal, who is not targeted as a criminal. I've been deeply moved in your work by the recognition that there needs to be a reevaluation of human value that's not based on how much money you have, whether that be in the economy or whether that be in the criminal justice system. It is weird how uh, we've otherized and and not express any empathy for people who are um, being pushed out of the economy and, and are struggling. Uh, you know, it's one of the silver linings of this pandemic is that now it's clear to us that it's no one's fault. Anyone who required physical contact, you know, their opportunities have gotten demolished uh, and no one's looking at it uh, up saying, well, they did something wrong, you know, like, but, but there's like a, a strange programming that we have in America to kind of blame whoever... Uh, bad things are happening to like mm-hmm. uh, on their own decisions and behaviors. If we can unlock that tendency, then we'll actually have a chance. Right, and welcome back to the next episode of Yang Speaks. I'm your co-host, Zach Grauman. Excited to be here, and it's been a big week for the Yang Gang, for many of you who have been paying attention. Um, excited to be with you all. I am wearing my Buffalo Bills gear. I'm wearing a shirt that says, School of Hard Knocks for our tight end, Dawson Knox. Now, I realize this is not a Buffalo Bills podcast, um, but I hope sometimes it's a Buffalo Bills fan discovery podcast uh, that if you don't have a sports team, just for your own sanity, when you listen to this, uh, you become a Bills fan, root for uh, a happier episode, if you will. So I'm recording this to air on Monday, which means um, when you are listening to this, folks, <laughs> I will either be elated and do uh, probably crying tears of joy or crying tears of absolute sadness so because the bills had their playoff game on saturday and this is airing monday so that's that anyway welcome back guys it's been a big week uh, many of you have been asking am i involved with the activities going on in andrew yang's world and the answer is of course i am involved are you kidding me for those of you who think i would let our boy out in the world on his own you've lost your mind so of course i am guys um but we will keep this podcast uh separate and on and on various topics but um as we, as you heard last episode, make a commitment to keep this interesting and awesome. And speaking of interesting, awesome, we have a pretty, we have an awesome, awesome episode. I've said awesome like three times. This is because it is. It's awesome. That's four times. Um, an amazing episode. This is actually one of my favorite episodes. So we, um, this is a treat. So Andrew goes on a lot of different podcasts, um, and we don't put them on Yang Speaks very often. Um, so when he's doing podcasts here, he's usually interviewing someone. But um, rarely, when it's a good one, when Andrew is the interviewee and he's getting asked the questions, we air them on Yang Speaks. 
because I think it is helpful to balance um, when Andrew's asking questions, when Andrew's talking about what he thinks. And you guys have heard a lot of what Andrew has to say. So um, I try to only do this when it's relevant, interesting, or new. And this is relevant, interesting, and new. So this interview is with Amanda Knox and her husband, Chris, on their new podcast called Labyrinth, which is really cool. And the, the concept of the podcast is about people who have been lost um, and how they navigate that labyrinth. And for those of you who don't remember, maybe familiar with the name Amanda Knox, like, who is that? Amanda Knox was falsely accused of murder while she was, uh, I believe, studying abroad in Italy. Um, and she was tried and proven innocent in two courts of law. Um, but the media dragged her through the mud. Um and by just by result here, she's become this to me, just a fascinating individual. And after listening to this uh, and getting to know her and recording this, a really wonderful human being, both her and her husband are. Um, and they interview Andrew and they're Yang Gang, they're fans and so they have their math hats on, which is fun. But um, it's a really interesting, it's a different tone for Andrew, which I think you guys are going to love. So they're, they're talk about a bit about his presidential run and why he ran and talk and, but the family side and the dad side of running for president. But then they talk about stuff Andrew doesn't always talk about. They talk about uh, what it was like for him when Evelyn was revealing her story about how she was assaulted by a doctor and, and, and where that fan, what he's done or how he handled it, frankly, as a husband and a father um, and his thoughts going through that entire process. Um, they talk about being lost in their life, um, which is the theme of their podcast. And hearing Andrew's perspective on that is, is fascinating. They talk about some of the interesting, unique policies that they love that we didn't always tout on the trail so much, like time banking, um, which is a really interesting kind of wonky. I was begging Andrew never to talk about on the trail because it was too beep boop, beep boop um, for the average human. But um, if you dive into it, it's amazing. And it's really an interesting concept um, and probably a good solution for this country. Um, they talk about criminal justice. They talk about humanizing the economy and fix, and they talk about fixing politics. But a lot of it, they talk about the future. They talk about Andrew's thoughts on where this world is going. So it's a, I'm happy and excited to say it's a different Yang. It's a Yang we don't get very often. Um, and I'll leave you with this before we dive in the episode is that Sometimes been frustrating for me as a human um, working with Andrew is that when he's on the trail or in public, um, he's super authentic. Do not get me wrong. But you guys see like politician Andrew, you know, um, happy go lucky, um, happy warrior Andrew. And I've gotten to know both that side, but also human being Andrew and um, the the human softer side of Andrew um, and anyone that works with Andrew closely learns to, to love working with him or just love where he's coming from in terms of a mindset and approach and honest belief that he's trying to help. That's one of the things I, I love about Andrew. His intentions are always pure. Um, so I think this episode really brings that out of him and that's credit to Amanda and Chris on this, on this interview. So this is a fascinating one, guys, honestly, um, for those of you been listening to this for a long time, um, I think you're going to hear something you haven't heard out of Yang before. So tune in, listen to the whole thing. Um, and with that, enjoy Amanda Knox, Andrew Yang on Yang Speaks. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched 
with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it, Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Let's start off with, you know, a lot of us know you as the UBI guy and the presidential, you know, candidate and the man who made UBI even an idea for a lot of people. Um you're also a dad, though, and a husband. And how do you feel like that has informed your ideas about the value of human beings that goes beyond economic value? I would never have thought about running for president if not for my experience as a parent. Uh, when our son Christopher was born in 2012, it was so transformative uh, for Evelyn and me. And we struggled mightily, in part because Christopher was a very difficult child. Um, whenever he woke up, he would uh, scream and cry uh, to a degree where I thought, like, is that normal like behavior? And you don't know because you're a first time parent. Uh, you know, years later, we had another child who did not scream uh, at the moment he opened his eyes. And then you thought, well, like, wow, like th there's a world <laughs> where. Um, so uh, so as first time parents, it was very difficult and confusing. It turned out that um, Christopher is autistic and realizing that when he was approximately four years old was actually uh, a relief because it kind of helped contextualize the struggles um, so seeing what Evelyn and I were going through, um, I just thought to myself, wow, uh, we're, uh, well, there are two of us and we're educated and have resources. Uh, and I was kind of cocky going in because I thought a lot of people have kids, like how bad can it be? Um, <laughs> and then you, and then you have a child and, uh, and then you're like, oh, this is actually really, um, stretching my soul in a way that I had not anticipated and testing my marriage and um, made me reflect on uh, like the way I was structuring my life. Uh, a friend of mine um, said it to me in a way that like, that stuck with me. He said, it's like the first time in your life where just trying harder doesn't work. Mm. Uh, where, you know, like you, uh, and, and I've been like a fairly, you know, um, ambitious professional and since I started businesses and I was doing things and I was able to put myself out there and just feel like, well, what's the worst that can happen? You know, I fail like, uh, and I have failed a number of times. Um, and then you just get up and try and keep pushing uh, with some struggles. 
Uh, but my friend was right that when it comes to parenting, it's not like you can just wake up the next day and be like, and today we're, you know, today we're going to just like roll up our sleeves and do great work or whatever. Like it doesn't really work <laughs> like that. Right. Um, any parent who's listening to this knows what I mean. Um, so we were struggling with it. Uh, and I knew some of the numbers around uh, the financial stresses and mm-hmm. challenges that tens of millions of Americans were facing. Uh, I knew the numbers around uh, single parenthood and motherhood uh, and how that's the new normal in our country. And I just cannot imagine being a parent and going through it alone, um, given what Evelyn and I were were um, facing. And we had a lot going for us. Uh, so all of that helped push me to think, wow, we're like we need to do things better for people and run for... And you know, there's really no feasible way I saw to try and get some of the um, changes across the finish line that did not involve something very, very uh, big, like running for president. Uh, um, and what the the tough part was that running for president took me away from my family a whole lot. Yeah. So it, it's like my family inspired me to run. And then the, the family had to do without dad for the better part of two years. What was that process of that um, discussion with Evelyn like about choosing to run? Like how drawn out was it? And do you remember the moment when you finally decided, I'm for sure doing it? Uh, Evelyn uh, is a true partner to an entrepreneur where when I first started talking about it, she was like, I wonder where this is going to go. You know, (laughs) she'd been through a version of that before when I'd started uh, an organization, Venture for America, is a nonprofit that I started in 2011. And it was just an idea. And I said, look, I think we should train an uh, army of hundreds, even thousands of entrepreneurs to start businesses in Detroit and New Orleans and Baltimore and Cleveland and St. Louis. Uh, and she was there for that. We joke sometimes that there was like a bait and switch because when she and I were dating and, and got married, I was a pretty normal guy and I had like a job that you could kind of put your finger on. And then <laughs> when my my when my company was acquired in 09, I started thinking, look, ooh, I want to try and uh, start this new organization in 2010, 2011. Uh, and so she'd been through that journey with me where she saw that, okay, uh, uh, you don't, know where the journey is going to take you necessarily mm-hmm. um but it it it's something that you can undertake together and that uh, there are some um real joys to it uh, as well as some some troughs and tough times and so i think she took my uh talking about running for president very very similarly where she was like well don't know where where this is going to go we joked later that um she would only come out of the trail after i was polling at three or four <laughs> percent like, like, sort, sort of as an example because like if 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 you're a let's say a massive public figure and you say um hey to your wife like i'm gonna run for president it's gonna transform our lives the press is gonna like you know scrutinize us and all this stuff and none of that necessarily was true when Andrew Yang was talking about it in, in 2017. Uh, when I say, hey, I'm going to run for president, like, you know, the most likely scenario is that everyone ignores you and no one, yeah. uh, no one's the wiser. So it's not like you have to have this, like, are you ready for your life to be scrutinized? Because, <laughs> because there's a very real chance that, uh, that that would never actually come to pass. But it did come to pass. And I'm grateful to all the people who supported my run, uh, including you, Amanda. So thank you. I mean, your run has meant a lot to us um, because, and I mean, maybe this is kind of where I can steer the conversation towards criminal justice um, because 
you know, I think that the thing that really struck me about your campaign and your ideas is how it puts the value of a human being back on that human being. Right. And I think that one of the things that I've found about the criminal justice system is how dehumanizing it can be to everyone that Mm -hmm. ends up getting sucked into it Um, and including the loved ones and support persons of people who are directly impacted by the criminal justice system including yourself. And I think that one of the things that doesn't get talked about enough is how being touched by the criminal justice system as a loved one and as a support person is really, really impactful. And I was wondering if you could maybe speak to your experience of that. Certainly incredibly proud of Evelyn stepping forward and telling her story about um, what happened with her doctor. And I obviously knew before the public revelation, but most all of my friends and family did not know. Mm. Uh, And Evelyn came forward in part because her doctor uh, had gotten off with essentially a slap on the wrist in early retirement where he said, uh, you know, he wasn't on on a serious offender list. He was at home in his house in New Jersey. Uh, And Evelyn said, well, that's awful. Uh, And happily now, thanks in part to, or really uh, almost entirely to Evelyn coming forward, uh, federal charges have been brought against that that doctor. And and now he's going to be incarcerated. Uh, And literally at this point, unfortunately, hundreds of women have stepped forward and Mm -hmm. said that the same thing happened to them from the same doctor over a period of years. Uh, So we've been fortunate that people have listened to Evelyn. But what one of the things that we don't talk enough about is that there were women who came forward very, very bravely uh, in a heartbreaking fashion about the same doctor prior to mm-hmm. Evelyn uh, mm-hmm. and just no one paid attention. And one of the reasons why Evelyn felt that she had to step forward was that she said, wait a minute, I actually could shine a light on this in a way that people would listen and uh, take real action And it was just so rare because we knew that that was just not the case for other women. And you were seeing it right in front of us where Evelyn actually felt this this obligation because she saw the bravery of these other women who were uh, literally on the steps of City Hall saying, this doctor did this to me. And then just no one was showing up to the press conference. Mm. Shoot. Mm. Yeah, I mean, how was it? For you to support her through that, becoming sort of the face of all of these women who had been targeted by the serial predator? It was uh, a balance because I just wanted to support her in whatever she did. Uh, You know, I never wanted her to feel like I um, wanted her to take a particular course of action that she wasn't 100 um, percent self-generating, really. Uh, I, I think I did say at one point, I was like, baby, I will support anything you do. And, it, you know, and uh, like, obviously, um, the natural thing to do would be to not necessarily take yourself um, and make yourself an open book to the public in this way. Um, but I hate these people and these institutions uh, that have done this to you and have enabled this to be uh, done to you. And if you want to go after them, like I am completely on board uh, and I would love to help. 
so 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 there there was like uh there was zero um uh self-consciousness on that level from me though though it was still uh heart-wrenching when she did sit with dana on cnn because that um clip was seen so many times where she and i got hundreds of text messages from friends and family who would just say like i never knew and of course you know how would they uh and and i think i i'd underestimated um the emotion of that that uh day uh and and sharing something with people who let's say saw us every you know day or every week or whatnot and did not know this about our family and then all of a sudden they do know mm-hmm. uh and and then they talk to you about it because obviously it's like well you know i see you and i never knew this happened to evelyn um so i i guess i have something of a pattern of not appreciating what that that emotional impact will be until like, it, it happens mm-hmm. um because like I, I just knew it was the right thing to do um but uh but it wasn't my right thing to do. You know, it, it was like, like it, like it had to be Evelyn's right thing to do. And if Evelyn had chosen not to step forward, that would have been the right thing to do too. In the sense that, right. you know, like everyone has to make their own decision uh, and you can't force anyone to, to go through something in the public eye in that way um, and say it's obligatory. I mean, that's not right. right. Uh, you know, like for people to know all these intimate details of, of something that happened to you and your family, uh, if you're willing to share that, then that's a real source of inspiration and strength mm-hmm. to me. Um, but it's not something you w- would ever, in my view, uh, push someone to do if they didn't want to do it themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially there's that danger for, um, I don't know why this is the case, but especially when women come forward there's this sense of like, oh, are you just trying to get attention by talking about this? It's like, mm-hmm. what do you like? Anyway, that's just no, another. No, I mean, your story speaks to this, too, Amanda. And there's such a powerful gendered element to it, too. It was so bizarre. Like the way you were treated was uh, insane, in my view, um, where it just spoke to the fact that there was like a, a reality that was depicted that was completely disconnected from the actual uh facts and actual reality uh and, and of course it would not have happened if you were not a woman you know like like that the, this crazy media depiction of you that and ended up um having you incarcerated as an innocent person for years uh that there is there's like an edification process i think that happens when you're uh married or to to someone um or you just have women in your life that you're very close to where you see just how unfair and misogynist Mm. uh the world is uh towards women on so many levels really every level and i'm i'm so grateful that you saw my campaign as trying to value humanity um in the face of these institutions uh, i think one of the the great struggles we're facing right now and our criminal justice institutions are top of the list uh mm-hmm. where you look up uh, in terms of their perpetration because if you uh run afoul of them you lose your life you lose your freedom like you know all, all yeah. these terrible things uh but but what we're seeing to me uh humanity lose to institutions on so many fronts uh mm-hmm. you know where 
when we decided to have the tagline for my campaign, Humanity First, uh, it was radical. Yeah. Uh, but then you reflect on it and you're like, well, what the heck else could be first? Yep. You know, like, it, was, it, was so, it was so wild. Where, where, you know, yeah. like, where people... Yeah, it was like, well, what, what, uh, what do you argue for? It is. It's like capital first, machines yeah. first, institutions mm-hmm. first. Um, but we we have been so subjugated where we literally are putting uh, capital mm-hmm. institutions, machines ahead of our own needs uh, on so many levels. Uh, and that's what we have to change. You know, we, we have to get enough of us together to say we are actually the most important, uh, uh, the important things in life is just us our families each each other yeah. uh and that starts with recognizing uh the realities that women face on so many levels You're speaking about Evelyn's experience really like highlighting the fact that the criminal justice system tends to treat people differently depending on, you know, if they can afford counsel, if like what, you know, how powerful they are within an institution. Like, are they going to be targeted by a prosecution or not targeted by a prosecution? Are people going to listen to the to a victim or are because they're famous potentially or because they're not like and I think that, you know, it. What it ultimately comes down to and what I love about how your approach to solving world's problems being humanity first is, you know, in your book, you talk about meritocracy and how meritocracy is this idea that if you're rich, it's because you're good. And if you're poor, it's because you're bad. And in the criminal justice system, we call this um, neoliberalism, where it's like, oh, if you if you are a criminal, it's because you're bad. And if you're not a criminal, it's because you're good. And not recognizing the complexity that goes into it, who gets targeted as a criminal, who is not targeted as a criminal, um, how we even decide what crimes, how to recognize crimes and how to punish them. Um, And so, like, I've been deeply moved in your work by the recognition that there needs to be a reevaluation of human value that's not based on how much money you have, whether that be in the economy Amen. or whether that be in the criminal justice system. Yeah, and, and putting that um, humanity first um, as you step into an arena like politics, which is you know seemingly designed to turn you into a caricature. Um, I it's interesting how you try to cut through that, I think, by displaying um, vulnerability, you know, like talking about Christopher's autism, um, even, you know, Evelyn stepping forward and you alongside there um, bringing your own personal struggles into that space, I think, does a lot to show your own humanity while you try to show the value of humanity in general. Um, I've heard you speak about, you know, the the difficulty of stepping into that media spotlight and like retaining your own sense of personhood um, because it so easily strips it away from you even when you're especially when you're being vilified like Amanda was yeah it's but nice I think, being you know, tabloid trash <laughs> <laughs> but even when you're being celebrated you know there's this sense of unreality that descends on you I think um yeah yeah it, that, that's been a major adjustment of the last couple of years and uh, I'm grateful for the fact that 
it seemed like my humanity became a feature of my campaign. Uh, and it, it be it became that way in large part because I couldn't succeed any other way. Like I couldn't out politician <laughs> the politician. <laughs> so as I show up, be like, I've got, you know, and, and the interesting thing is like the media does not care that much about your plans anyway. You know what I mean? Like, like, like you, you think you're arguing on that level. You're not, you're arguing on a different level <laughs> of whether people yeah. actually will click on the link or will, will um, uh, want to read the story. Uh, one of the challenges for us was, and I realized this, and Trump is the biggest illustration of this, is that if you're good for ratings, then they'll cover you. And so right. it's like, wow, how do we make me good for ratings? <laughs> yeah. like that, that's, you're stepping into a broken yeah. game and saying, like, how can I play this game by the broken rules in order to change the rules? Yeah. Right. I've been trying to imagine how you change the incentives of the media so that instead mm. of it being, you know, fomenting outrage, it's about you know, informative, informative, thought-provoking content. Like, is that even possible? No, I'm trying to dig into a media reform plan in this direction, Amanda, because if you look at our problems, they're very, very big and getting bigger. Uh, and you need us to come together and try and find real solutions. And the incentives around media companies are to turn us against each other, to polarize mm -hmm. us. Uh, the social media companies, it's, you know, amped up even exponentially where... Uh, you have different versions of reality getting funneled into people's feeds. And so the the question is, how would you try and address this if you were to, to have um, control of uh, various levers? And it's not easy, but I you know that but we have to try. And I, I think one of the the areas where there should be broad public agreement um, is the death of local journalism where mm. local papers used to be something we trusted to a, a high degree, but now yeah, I came from a family of, of local papers, you know, my, that was my whole, my whole family background and they all went belly up in early two thousands, you know, and not having a local paper has been demonstrated to be bad for public trust. It's bad mm. for government and accountability. Uh, it's, it polarizes us because you just vote along party lines because no one's covering what's going on in your town. You're like, I don't know what's going on. So I'm just right. going to, you know, like uh, pull for the R or the D. Fewer people run for office. Uh, mm -hmm. Cost of public financing goes up. Um, so so that the, the, the need to invest in local journalism is very clear in a public level. Uh, philanthropists are starting to put some money behind it. But the... the one of the challenges is that the scale of our problems exceeds uh, philanthropy by orders of magnitude, like mm -hmm. 10 or 100. But uh, Amanda, you can imagine a, a world where there are more media organizations that are essentially market insensitive, where they just mm -hmm. put out content that they're excited about and believe in. And it doesn't really matter whether people find it scintillating um, uh, or the ratings are high. And there are a couple of kernels of that that exist right now. Uh, so that when I was running for president, you know, the only folks that interview me in a lot of places I went, NPR stations. Huh. <laughs> you know, like, so so we have uh, National Public Radio, we have PBS and the public TV. No one watches that stuff, obviously. We have C-SPAN. Um, uh, so you have these things that are very, very dull and market insensitive. <laughs> and, and then... And then and then, and then you have podcasts, which is a whole another interesting realm. And so you can imagine a world where, uh, like, for example, let's say 
CNN ran an hour-long conversation with someone that was kind of podcast style. It's called long form instead of having the cadence of cable news hits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you can imagine a world where um, you have government uh, subsidies for that kind of programming where it's like, mm -hmm. hey, you run something boring. <laughs> like, we, <laughs> we'll we actually, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll make you whole by like essentially like filling that advertising hole yeah. so you don't need to worry about it at that time. Um, like th there are things you could do in that direction that I think are going to be increasingly necessary mm. uh, because th there are three major problems. One, local journalism is dying. Two, media um, benefits from our polarization. And three, social media makes everything nastier, more negative, more vitriolic and less real. Um, and that's going to become worse when we have ai enabled deep fakes and and the rest of it totally. in literally yeah. like like a month you know i mean yeah, so, I know. so um so I, i'm all for freedom of press and expression um but you can't just enable like a like a cacophony of falsehoods um to overrun us because that that's what's happening yeah so that that problem of polarization um through social media and the media in general is I think is a deep one that you correctly identify. Um, but I, there's also a deeper problem, um, which is, you know, we're both um, big fans of Jonathan Haidt's um, The Righteous Mind, um, which I think you're familiar with. Um, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I just uh, traded messages with John the other day. He's done us such a great service by explaining to us what is going on. I, I, I had everyone on my team try and read that book. I don't know if they actually did. <laughs> It was huge for us to like understand that people have different moral palettes and that like where we have a certain moral urgency for like preventing harm and people and like ensuring liberty. people's liberty. Yeah. Other people have like this deep moral urgency for, you know, tradition, tradition or, or obedience uh, to authority, loyalty, right? yeah. sanctity. Yeah. So yeah, like things like how that. do you unite? How do you unite people across that divide, which is deeper than a social media polarization, but which is has something to do, maybe it's genetic, who knows what it is, some core moral difference? Well, in John's book, he actually says that there are genetic traits that end up leading yeah. you towards p political um, dimensions. Uh, I believe one of them was uh, desire for novelty. And mm -hmm. the other was a disgust reflex where, and those are biological, uh, you know, you either um, really like trying new foods or you don't. And I have two kids, right. so I can speak to this. Like, you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of nature baked into this. Basically, what I do now is I just study the criminal justice system and study um, different reforms that are being proposed. Is this like I've gained an appreciation for what it must feel like to be, well, maybe not what it must feel like, but the fact that it must feel like something to be the demographic most prone to criminality. And mm -hmm. that is young men. Um, and I was really excited in your book that you spent some time, like a whole chapter, talking about young men who are not college educated, who are increasingly feeling alienated from mm -hmm. the economy and from society. And so they're spending a lot more time in their parents' basements playing video games. And I was wondering if you could like speak to having empathy for for that demographic, because I feel like that demographic is having a tough time uh, 
receiving empathy at the moment. <laughs> no, it, it, it's funny. And I, I, I think I conclude that chapter by saying that that guy is within us waiting to take over if our lives fall apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like, like, like I, so I'm a happily married man and a dad. And, you know, I, I've, I've uh, got a lot of responsibility uh, but I vividly remember just being that teenager, just spending hours and hours playing video games. Uh, and, and I, I uh, appreciate the young men who don't feel like there's been a place for them uh, because I felt the same way for years and years of my adulthood, uh, certainly in my adolescence, you know, like growing up the uh, lone Asian kid uh, and always feeling alienated. Um, that I, I found science fiction and video games and role-playing games to be a much more appealing version of, of reality than the uh, day-to-day uh, school life and whatnot and going in and uh, um, sort of the the small or significant humiliations of of, <laughs> yeah. of, of uh, you know, junior high school or whatnot. Um, uh, and in my case, at every stage, there were struggles, but... Uh, but there were also um, opportunities because, like, I, you know, I, I had things going for me where I like you give me a bubble sheet, I can fill it out really good, and then be yeah. like, oh, what's that? And, like, go to a good schools. Like, all right, like, you know, I can do these things, and, and it it did not make me any better a person. You know, it's just like I had certain uh, proficiencies that were, uh, you know, primarily just through luck of the draw. You know, like who my parents were, so. So I feel like I can relate to these guys because I was one of these guys. And I feel like every guy is this, these guys. Uh, I, you know, I genuinely feel like every guy can relate to, to this. Uh, and, and it is weird how uh, we've otherized and, and not expressed any empathy for people who are um, being pushed out of the economy and, and are struggling. And certainly some of the directions that... Um, They've, they've been pulled in are noxious and terrible and 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 toxic uh, but I met I met a lot of people on the trail uh, and like I I met so many folks who were from um, you know different regions or uh, demographics or situations where they were struggling and they were just hurting you know there's mm-hmm. just a lot of pain uh, th- there's a real lack of humanity in the way we we look at other people's struggles and, and the meritocracy is kind of there pummeling us at all times mm-hmm. and you yep. know if you, you you're like at, at home in the basement with your parents like oh something wrong with you uh you know it's one of the silver linings of this pandemic is that now it's clear to us that it's no one's fault you know like you look up and say hey like those security guards hairstylists um um massage uh, or masseuses, uh, yoga instructors, anyone who required physical contact, you know, their opportunities have gotten demolished uh, and no one's looking at it uh, up saying, well, they did something wrong, you know, like, but but there's like a, a strange programming that we have in America to kind of blame whoever uh, bad things are happening to like mm-hmm. uh, on their own decisions and behaviors. Uh, and if we can unlock that, tendency then we'll actually have a chance uh and and i do think this pandemic is an opportunity for us that way i mean it's terrible in many many like in just about every other respect but uh, i think it's showing the ridiculousness of some of the uh, meritocratic assumptions Mm -hmm. what's interesting is the 
the ways that society considers those young men to be wasting time, um, I think they're actually, and I, I identify with this a lot as a former video game, um, and actually we're in the middle of a D&D campaign right now. Amanda it's epic. <laughs> I'm basically Legolas. Yeah. Um, Just saying. But like, you know, um, <laughs> there's a lot of um, goal completion. There's a lot of like finding... Um, finding meaning and achieving goals that happens in those worlds. And uh, for me as a D&D player way back in the day, like that taught me storytelling and informed my later career as a novelist. Uh, like I never would have got that if I hadn't been building stories through Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and so I feel like those, to write off those activities as like loner basement, waste of time, disengaging from society is to like miss the fact that those people often have desires to be meaningful and and um, productive that society isn't allowing them an opportunity to fulfill. And the flip side of that, I would say, is that you also have the same thing where if you're, you know, your dad used to say, well, you're a good thing you're playing video games. At least you're not on the street. Mm. And like a good sort of flip side of that coin is, you know, for a long time, we've seen young men who have not had great opportunity find value and meaning through gangs and violence and asserting their humanity through this sort of destructive lens. Mm. Um, but instead of acknowledging where their humanity is, like where that tendency is coming from, we've just decided to lock them away for the rest of their life. Um, I, yeah. I had some far out ideas uh, while I was running in this direction where I, I feel like we should have essentially publicly subsidized or free um, MMA training and jujitsu for like pretty mm. much anyone who wants it. Like if you're a knucklehead, you just want to like freaking like, you know, like, uh, like get some aggression <laughs> out, which is like freaking like, you know, yeah. just freaking like get you, uh, get you a dojo. Yeah. You can like roll with people. That, that stuff's incredibly exhausting. You end up getting self-development uh, and self-improvement habits really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like imagining that this, these human impulses don't exist is ridiculous. It's like, like, yeah. a, of course, like, you know, I was a very angry young man. And so, you know, like uh, I, like uh, I uh, would have benefited from some of those activities, you know, and like um, we should just be like, be like, sure, like have at it. Like, you know, like, <laughs> like, yeah. um, like and Chris, one one thing you said about uh, role playing games, I actually put in um, in uh, my other book, um, I didn't dream about being the scribe i dreamt about going into the woods and killing something uh when i talked about <laughs> when i talked about uh leaving a secure career to go start a business it was mm. like like when i was a lawyer i was literally a scribe and i was mm. like i did not spend my childhood aspiring to be the fucking scribe like i i, <laughs> I, spent, my, I spent my childhood like uh aspiring to go go into the woods and kill the dragon so i was like well yeah. what's the dragon in this situation it's sure mm. as hell not this job so like so i thought the dragon was uh starting a company and turns out the dragon was too tough for me and like, you know, breathe fire killed me. But then I was like, all right, <laughs> like, I'll, I'll, I'll try again. Make Maybe a new I character. can't take on the dragon. Yeah, I'll, the yeah, I'll make a new character. And <laughs> instead of taking on the dragon, I'll take something more manageable. I'll like go kill this ogre. <laughs> yeah. So can we talk about something like uh, the, the thing that I was most excited about in all of your work is the thing that comes after, you know, sort of when we divorce human value from economic value, what comes afterwards? And your whole chapter on time banking and social credit actually reminded me, believe it or not, 
of prison and not in a bad way. So here's here's where how it reminded me. So like prison, we know, is a place where time is valued. We all know it because we've taken away someone's time. That is the thing that we have taken from someone. They are serving time. Every human being that is within a prison knows that that day is being taken from them because they either did something or they didn't do something in in my case. And I found that one of the more deeply hurtful things about the whole experience was being denied the opportunity to have value, to be productive, to do something. I'm just supposed to sit there and serve time and lose life. And one of the ways that I surreptitiously found meaning within the prison environment was realizing that I was one of the only literate persons in the prison, literally. Like, most of the people that I was in prison with were either illiterate or they didn't speak Italian. So as soon as I learned how to speak Italian, I realized that the social credit that I could earn in that environment was you know, helping people write letters and read their own letters and translate for them when they had to go to the doctor and explain why their tummy hurt. And that became my sort of this sort of time credit thing that was unofficial. And the thing that I like, I had this sort of moment of revelation when I was reading your book where it was like, OK, right now in prisons, we have this thing called earned time for good behavior, where if you're a prisoner who, um, first of all, in most cases, is not considered a violent prisoner, which is a little bit hard. It's a like, lot of overclassifying. In that there's a lot of overclassifying, yeah. but also I think that we need to be incentivizing above all else people who have committed violent offenses to be on, you know, be proactive right. about rehabilitation. But we reward prisoners for taking part in rehabilitation programs and not getting into trouble. But it's mostly a non-action thing. It's don't, mostly a don't non-action thing. Don't do the bad thing. action. That's and good behavior. Signing right. and sign up for the rehabilitation program. Just sort of show up. But what if we made it more proactive? What if you could earn time by teaching your cellmate how to read? What if you could earn time by being yes. a counselor for nonviolence? And we could we could use the prison environment to actually have prisoners create their own value and see their fellow prisoners as opportunities to create social credit and earned time. I feel like that would revolutionize prison and rehabilitation if we actually put rehabilitation in the hands of the prisoners and and gave them the opportunity to create that value for themselves and genuinely incentivize them because I feel like right now we draw too many lines and make it too difficult for people mm -hmm. to be incentivized to rehabilitate. Anyway, and, that's and my grand scheme and I want to know if you want to get in on it with me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I absolutely love that plan um, and, and it's like a reasonable summary of where we have have to go where it's not enough to just have rules and say, hey, don't do this to your fellow prisoner. It's like, what about like the 10 million things you could do that would be positive? Swish your brain around. Like, what could I be doing? Not mm -hmm. what shouldn't I be doing? What could I be doing? And I think that would be. And from a data collection perspective, what a great test case for a social credit time bank system that could exist out in the world at large. You know? That was totally divorced from the economy. Yeah. Anyway, just an idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I I love it. I you know uh, 
they're rolling out various pilots of of this time banking um, right now during the the pandemic. But uh, the prison environment makes a lot of sense to me because you'd have a, a lot of people where it would just make them feel a million times more valuable if they looked around and said, "Wait a minute, like I could actually do something for this this my my fellow inmate, uh, and it's going to help both of you." Uh, and there could be some actual reward system in place in terms of the new definition of good behavior, but even something uh, more basic where it's like, Hey, you do this enough. And then like, you know, whatever you get like extra, like what happens in prison? What could they do for you that you would have been happy about? Oh gosh. I mean, a million things, more visitation time, like more in-person visitation time. I, I was limited to eight hours a month of visitation time with my parents. And that meant, you know, I had an hour twice a week. I would have loved to have spent more time with my family. Um, that would be huge. Um, also better, you know, employment opportunities, getting a better wage, like anything. Like there are a million things that are taken away from you in prison that you could give back. <laughs> <laughs> healthcare, healthcare, any kind of healthcare. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I like the idea of spending time to get time. It's like, hey, you do this time, um, you know, you do something positive for your fellow inmates and you get more time with your loved ones. Uh, yeah. So that that would be something that people could understand. Though I agree with you, you also should have gotten health care and wages and everything else. I mean, I like that. Yeah, that's kind of a baseline. <laughs> like, that's I a think. lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Just reflecting on what's going on out there, uh, we need to get people health care and money and, and other things. And then, equally importantly, uh, construct these positive opportunities for folks because the the concerns that I had when I wrote my book uh, are um, even more immediate now. You know, like I think all the time about all the folks whose livelihoods have disappeared and what that means to them as individuals. Um, like we we talk about it, even I do it too. It's like you talk about the economy uh, and like these various numbers, but like I always translate it to human terms and what that what that's doing to families. Hmm. Yeah. So this um, this podcast we're making here is called Labyrinths, and we're looking at times when people have felt particularly lost or stuck. Um, and you're an optimistic guy with a vision. At least that's how we've come to know you. Um, you know, when when does the man with a vision feel most lost? Well, I wasn't born a man with a vision, that's for sure. <laughs> and like I was, uh, like, I was. Uh, I was lost throughout much of my um, childhood, adolescence, through my 20s, too, because um, when I left the corporate environment and started this business that failed and then everyone knew I'd failed and uh, and I felt really bad about myself. And when you feel bad about yourself, it's hard to have a positive relationship, you know what I mean? Like where you show up and um, show up for the date or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you're just like like hey i don't know what i'm doing with my life i'm like really down on myself it's like oh that's attractive <laughs> you know, so, so um there, so there. that the, <laughs> <laughs> so so that there was like a lot of uh struggle i was a late bloomer uh and i hit my stride um when i was about 30 31 um i found a great company uh and opportunity and I met Evelyn, um, and those things happen in, in kind of quick succession. Uh, so since then, 
certainly the biggest struggles I've had have been around being a parent and being a good partner to Evelyn. And, and that has been very hard um, at times, uh, but lovely, but very, very difficult. Uh, and uh, on the campaign trail, there were definitely some really tough times. Um, but I was always sure that I was doing the right thing, which uh, helps. You know, it's like if, if you're... Uh, struggling and you're not going in the right direction like it's much much worse whereas in my case I was struggling but I I knew I was doing something Mm -hmm. important uh that needed to be done uh and the universe kept trying to help me too you know like uh, the universe is represented by um phenomenal people like you who saw in me uh someone who wanted to improve our way of life um so if you ask like how like the times I felt lost the times I needed to find a way out uh Certainly, I've had many dark nights of the soul when I was younger, uh, and I'm very grateful that those nights aren't the norm now um, mm-hmm. because my, my family is happy and healthy, and I'm um, married to an incredible person, uh, and I, I've got all of these folks who've um, decided to support my work, which is incredible, and, and uh, the fact that even though my campaign ended, I will say after my campaign ended, I was like, oh, I wonder what happens now. Like, oh. you know, like, oh. and, and, and I, I felt all this urgency to be like, oh, I'm going to start this organization. I'm going to do all these things and like make people know that I'm still fighting for the same things. Uh, and and it, it's been really gratifying that, you know, folks still see in me someone who's uh, trying to keep moving things in a better direction. Yeah. Hmm. You know, my, my dark night of the soul was... Um, I've had a, I've had a couple, but like one time I felt the most lost was after grad school. I went to grad school for poetry twice. Um, yeah, <laughs> and then I graduated, and I was like, "What? A, I'm supposed to get a job now? Now I'll just do more grad school." Um, and so I have two MFAs in poetry, and then I became an adjunct English professor in New York for a little while. I was teaching at Hunter College, and it was a slog. It was low wages, job insecurity, no health care. You don't know how many classes you're going to have until the semester starts. And so I then I discovered that there was this thing called artist colonies and I didn't have to have a job and I could just float around the country by applying for these fellowships and I could just leave the job market entirely. And that was like a revelation for me. Um, I quit my job and I moved into the wind for about four years. And that was both incredibly liberating, but then the the burden of finding meaning and having a, a structure and order to my day and to my life fell entirely upon me. Um, and because I was anchorless and drifting around the country and moving to a new place every month where a fellowship would have me, uh, my relationships fell apart. Um, a lot of the stability in my life was gone. And psychologically, I, I crumbled a bit and I had to sort of move back to Seattle and regain my footing. Um, so that was both incredibly liberating for me and um, a very precarious scenario. Um, and for me, it, it points out, it points to this broader problem that humanity is going to be facing as the automation revolution comes and puts us all in that scenario. Um, and so maybe this is a good time to kind of shift into talking about your favorite subject. <laughs> um, humanity. The, yeah, I mean, the, the tightrope we're walking where like this is going to, destroy us or lead us to utopia and you know how do we make it the the latter instead of the former 
we have to speed up as quickly as possible, Chris. And what you went through, I think most everyone would go through a version of that where initially you're like, oh, this would be great. And then like after a little while, it starts wearing on you uh, in particular ways. Um, we all crave a degree of structure and community and meaning and purpose. And, uh, you know, like that those environments are are integral. Uh and more and more of us are getting thrown to the wind and more and more of us are struggling uh, with versions of it. And unfortunately, when we lose our struggles, um, you don't really hear about it in the same way. Like you hear about it in, in your own life and like people in your life where you're like, oh, my high school classmate, um, you know, uh, uh, OD'd or did something like uh, tragic and terrible. But you you have a lot of quiet um quiet losses uh and and that that's sweeping our communities really um and it's been endlessly frustrating to me that like we just don't really see that in our media reports or talk mm -hmm. about it it's like always about like who said what and this and like you do realize our way of life is disintegrating and, <laughs> and we can see and feel it around <laughs> us uh, uh and the rest of it so that that's what we have to stab off as quickly as possible, we have to invest meaning and value in people. Uh, I genuinely believe that universal basic income would be the biggest move we could make that would just improve the way of life for so many folks because just so many people um, just don't feel valued at all. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're, and we we're just bullshitting everyone being like, Oh, you matter, you matter. But like, I'm not, I'm not going to invest shit in you, but like, you know, but like I said it, you know, maybe I said it mm -hmm. to like millions of people on like, you know, my, um, you know, my news conference or whatever, but you know, like as a society, we're not investing in ourselves and each other in this way. Um, I talked about it. Uh, I talked about it to a, a group of folks and I said, you show up to work at a new company, new job. You can tell within a day or two whether they care about you at all. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, like you know. Um, yeah. And when 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 companies do invest in you, sometimes it's annoying and misplaced. You're like, oh, I have to do this like nonsense training thing. Like, what's going right. on? Like, you know, and like you kind of roll your eyes internally. <laughs> but but that that stuff still shows like they're trying. You know, right. even if like the the attempts are kind of uh, misplaced. Uh, and, and so like that, that is like the fundamental shift is like, do we actually demonstrate that we care about each other uh, through some kind of um, real value, an investment that people will feel in, in their day to day lives? If we do that, then we can turn things pretty quickly. Uh, it's a big if. So when I ran for president, uh, I thought the problem was that no one had heard of universal basic income. And I thought, man, if, if I can get this to the mainstream, everyone's going to be like, what? Like, I vote for that guy. I might get a thousand bucks a month or whatever like that number is. Yeah. And like, <laughs> I, 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 I knew there would be a lot of people who'd be like, that's impossible. Uh, uh, now, as we're having this conversation, a majority of Americans think we should have universal basic income. Yeah, well, uh, you get a lot to shift the Overton window for all of us, I think, you know? You know, yeah, I played a role, uh, you know, hopefully like the, you know, I, I feel like I woke up a sleeping giant, like you all and everyone else gave me like a stick and I was like, poke, poke, poke. But <laughs> but the, the thing I've realized now is that uh, our government does not actually respond to what the majority of us think, uh, that mm -hmm. there are a lot of things that we might be passionate about. And you all are doing work in this direction. Let's say a majority of Americans agree that we should reform our, our 
criminal justice system, uh, which I think we I do think at this do. point. Yeah. Yeah, I think they do. It's like, uh, so problem solved, right? It's like, no, actually, those institutions like still have their own like crazy perverse incentives and yeah, like, ways ideological money. capture and yeah, lobbyists, all that stuff. Yeah. So the the big problem now I, I've realized is that we have to be able to translate popular will towards policy changes that cost people money. Um, right now, the, the major issue is that there are these parasitic organizations, let's call them private prisons as one example. But yet you have these organizations that are making billions of dollars, and they, they don't want anything to change. And so if you go and say, hey, we should give everyone money, or we should reform our criminal mm-hmm. justice system, um, there are folks who will kneecap you. Um, and our members of Congress don't truly have incentives to solve our problems, because right. Uh, because their re-election rate is 94%, uh, even though the approval rate we have of them is 21%. Uh, and they, they have they have like Yeah, it's like being in an abusive dollar relationship. Dollar yeah. We're like, at yeah. least we know this abusive yeah. husband. <laughs> well, there's also even the people who would ostensibly be allies. The, you know, I don't want to knock Bernie too much, but like there's this paradigm on the on the left that the living wage is this thing and it's just anchored in this archaic mode of thinking that your labor is the main thing that contributes to your value um and like you know i think you you found yourself butting up against that too on the left right like getting ubi out there isn't just a matter of convincing the republicans <laughs> you know which is the harder sell but even the even those people on the left i think is kind of a hard sell because you have to tell them like oh you know Let's remove that old Marxist dialectic there, right? You matter even yeah, if you're the, not productive. Well, people who are fired up and arguing for something and then you come on and say, hey, maybe we should argue for this other thing. They're like, no, I like, hey. <laughs> I, like the thing I, I like the thing I was arguing for. And you're like, all right, you know. Yeah. Um, so, so, the, uh, so the challenge is really going to be to try and rework our institutions so that they're more responsive and more people are, are going to have to act against their own interest. And I now see a path as to how that has to look. Uh, how to translate popular will towards action. Uh, and it's around democracy reform, ranked choice voting, mm-hmm. open primaries, public campaign financing. Like uh, like uh, now I'm, um, I want to be like the plumber of government or like the mechanic where you look up right. and say, hey, like, you know, another thing I'm going to be, be um, trumpeting term limits. Like, mm-hmm. you know, 75% of Americans think that we should have term limits for your rep- reps when they go to Washington. They should come back at some point. Uh, and there was actually a movement in the states where they were starting to adopt term limits for their representatives, like just unilaterally in the states. They were like, hey, you know, we, we send you, you have to come back. And then there was a Supreme Court case being like, actually, no states, you can't determine that. Like, like that, that's not a state mm. thing. Interesting. Uh, <laughs> and you had huh. dozens of states that were doing it because 75% of Americans uh, plus know that it's a good idea. So these are some of the things that that if we were to to change the mechanics of government, we'd have a better shot at things. It's fun. It's fun. It's like, you know, I'm just like the entrepreneur um, trying to solve the problem. And I'm like, okay, let's uh, divorce economic value and human value. Let's eradicate poverty. Let's like humanize our institutions. And then you build a movement around that. And then you butt up against government you're like wait a minute this government doesn't mm-hmm. actually like, <laughs> like like want to respond to you know like what what we think it'd be like why is that and then you look and say oh it's because 
uh, your incentives don't actually require you to listen to us. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and so we have these fictions where they do listen to us, but they don't really. Um, like that, there was like an Onion headline that cracked me up. It was like the American people hire their own lobbyist uh, to work on Capitol Hill. <laughs> yeah, right. <Yeah. laughs> So if we zoom out for a minute to a more global humanity scale, if humanity itself is kind of stuck in a labyrinth, that sounds like the current minotaur we're facing is is political dysfunction. Like the, or automation. The, the machine that is supposed to self-improve and respond to our desires isn't, is failing. And if we can fix that, then we can address the, the bigger minotaur of automation and artificial intelligence. Mm. Um, we could we can't even address it right now because the, even though we know about it and care about it, like it doesn't it doesn't make its way through our clogged political pipes, right? So say that we somehow do fix these the pipes issue, and we get to that future. Like, what is that? What does humanity's path out of this quagmire look like? Um, in 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 even going into the far future, you know, are we looking at a a world where none of us have? normal jobs or jobs at all where, I mean, I mean do you even th think as far as like, say, artificial super intelligence? Ideally, we'd end up having roles that are uh, generated by our needs and wants and values and not what the market thinks we should be doing. Uh, right. So that, that's, that's like our, our best case scenario. Um, and in that world, you might have AI doing certain things and then you just say, you know what, we're going to do this ourselves because we kind of prefer it that way, even though maybe you can do it better. <laughs> mm. <laughs> like I, I think there'll be some of that going on. Um, let's use poetry as an example. Let's say I come up with an AI that's like really, really good at poetry. You still might have some human poets around because <laughs> because <laughs> you're like, you know what, I, I, I like, uh, maybe it's not so much. goods, you know? Right, you value something yeah, yeah. just because it's handmade, even if it's the exact quality as the machine-made product. Right? Yes. So the, the the fact that it was generated by a human will have mm -hmm. value. Uh, now, can we get there? I mean, we have a very very tall challenge uh, ahead of us. Um, universal basic income is the biggest single step that we could take that I think would just change everyone's outlook. Uh, because just getting that money and feeling like, wow, I do deserve that money. Like you, you know, I, I belong, like mm -hmm. I, I matter. Like that is an enormous step forward. And then you would see many, many more people in communities construct uh, these opportunities that reflect their own needs and, and wants and values because they'd have some resources. They'd look around mm -hmm. and say, okay, I've got this money. I've gone out and bought myself some stuff. I did that in like the first couple months or whatnot. And then by the third month, they'd look around and be like, hey, if 10 of us get together, we can like do something interesting in this direction. Like, maybe you know, we can it's start, funny you uh, mentioned that. We have a friend who's um, been writing a series called Escape Pod about ejecting from capitalism. And he's <laughs> one of his ideas is what if you get about, he thinks the threshold's about 10 people, form a commune, go live off the land, grow your own food, solar panels as much as you can. If you pool your basic income with 10 people, economies of scale allow you to effectively withdraw from the productive economy and survive off, you know, as a little localized cluster. Does that break the UBI system <laughs> yeah. or is that, you know, a, an example of the UBI system at its best? Uh, I think 
that would be tremendous. Uh, and one of the things I believe it will spur is like a drive towards minimalism, you know, mm-hmm. where you just have a much lower carbon footprint because you're in your mini commune, uh, you know, yeah. like uh, doing some farming and tending and writing and um, wh- whatever it is that you want to work on. That doesn't break UBI at all. Are you kidding? Like, there are a lot of people who would be very excited about that. <laughs> so, could, what do you think I'm doing right now? I know, right? <laughs> like, um, so, just would you chilling mi- in the woods. Would you mind, like, quickly addressing the, the main objections just for listeners who might not be familiar with UBI? Like, you know, how are we going to afford this? And, you know, isn't it going to cause inflation? Like, what's your... What's your pitch for How do I convince my dad, who's an an accountant from the 80s, that (laughs) UBI is a good idea? (laughs) Well, your your dad's going to be tough. But uh, on the. (laughs) We're just going to have to wait Um, those people out. (laughs) So, for the big ones, the main one is like, how do you afford it? And the big thing people have to understand is look, you get the money, the money doesn't disappear. It just goes right back into your local economy, community, car repairs, daycare groceries, local nonprofits, it ends up just flowing back in and creating a virtuous cycle. Uh, You're not going to see massive inflation in large part because um, you actually still have a competitive dynamic in just about every market. If you look at what's happened with our current prices, there are only three areas where we've seen massive inflation. Unfortunately, they're the ones that hurt. Housing, education, and healthcare. Mm -hmm. And then you look at them and say, why are these things going up in price and everything else is okay? It's because those markets aren't functioning properly uh, Mm -hmm. for a variety of reasons. You know, like schools just keep on jacking up their prices every year. And you're like, well, I have no choice but to pay. Like healthcare, are you kidding me? Like they also just have a business model. While the the tenured faculty disappear and the adjunct class rises as the, you know, Uber drivers of academia, basically. Yeah, so inflation's yeah. not driven by purchasing power. It's being driven by uh, dysfunctional industries uh, and and markets where you just don't feel like you have a choice. Uh, so those are a couple of the the big ones. Um, and then the the other big one is like, well, what will people do? And I think right. we've talked about that, yeah. which is like, well. You know, I think we'll figure that part out. Yeah, I'm so inspired by the idea of people just finding value and helping each other out. Like hmm. the example of I don't know how to set up my propane tank. Good thing this guy knows how to. But hmm. what if I was alone like that? Like that is something that genuinely would help people and also genuinely make people feel useful. Like I just I'm so thrilled about that idea. Um, hmm. Anyway. Well, thank you for digging into my work so deeply. Um, really huge admirer of yours as well. Uh, and I, I agree with you about the fact that this really is about humans trying to reform institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now in American life, institutions are winning. The money is winning. Humans are losing. And that's what we have to turn around. We have to get yep. together and say, wait a minute. Like, if this is not working for us then why don't we change it? Like, are we not still in control? Are we not the owners and shareholders of this uh, of this country? Is it not still a democracy? Like, can we still not get together and say, if we all hate this stuff, like, why don't we uh, like yeah. shift it? Um, and, and that's, you know, that that's what I'm about. That's what you're about. And mm-hmm. just uh, thrilled to, to be able to hopefully um, work together to see these changes through. Yeah, I mean, and I, yeah, I think it's, I, what I found so exciting about coming across your work again is realizing how the economy 
and the criminal justice system are like two like sides of the same coin where the humanity of the people involved has been swallowed up by an institutional machination and we need to like just recognize that and mm. say the human beings are not working for this institution anymore we need the institution to work for us so yes really applaud Amen. you <laughs> <sighs> yeah you know it's funny with a company like amazon you know who's what is it? do you remember their slogan it's like is it the, the, we will own you <laughs> no i mean it's like customer first or something like that right uh, i mean it's like um a, a customer amazon. obsession Something like that, for, right? For, for the enrichment of I know, Bezos. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my my last book was um, a satirical take on Amazon launching drone delivery in Detroit. Um, and I went to Detroit for a while to research that book, and it just blew my mind. Um, everyone should go to a place like Detroit. Mm -hmm. um, there's other ones, Youngstown, right? But, like, Detroit's a big one, which you talk about in The War on Normal People. And, you know, seeing the... There's some really inspiring things happening in those places. Yeah. People, you know, urban farming, people coming up with new new ways to utilize um, land that has that was made for massive urban populations that is now um, has tiny, tiny populations in the midst of abandoned buildings. Um, it's it's ripe for technology to come in and do interesting things. Um, and what I think the problem is, is you have. You know, you have Bezos and companies like Amazon saying, oh, what a great opportunity for drone delivery, say. Um, and there there are positive sides where they can, you know, their marketing department will say, well, look, we're bringing these fulfillment centers and we're building, creating all these jobs, uh, which and we're these... eventually going to automate away completely. <laughs> um, but also, you know, we can bring food to the middle of food deserts where there's no grocery stores. Isn't that a great thing? Um, what's the counter to that? Or how how do you, you know... Can something be good in the short term but disastrous in the long term? Um, or how do we shape those technological infusions into our urban collapse in such a way that they don't lead to further collapse? Well, it strikes me that an easier way to get those people food would be to actually build that grocery store. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm going to deliver, deliver food via drone. Like, you have a grocery store. It's like, yeah, you could probably just set up a grocery store there. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, I, so, uh, so that's my first impulse. Um, but, you know, we're, we're going to be uh, we're going to be struggling with the ramifications of um, certain tech technologies getting implemented in different places. You know, and I'm someone who likes innovation and progress, uh, but it it's clear the pendulum's gone way too far in a particular direction where we're just like hoping that they don't do anything too atrocious. <laughs> you right. know, it it's like... And if they do, because what you are going to do about it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 there's like a... Um, there's a real imbalance. I mean, some of these firms are countries unto themselves is what uh, is how someone described it. And it, they're not wrong. I mean... No, at this point, uh, Amazon's passed a trillion dollars in market value. Uh, and so if you can imagine if you're within that behemoth and you're looking around trying to do something, like how seriously are you really going to take you know, yeah. <laughs> like, like something that's standing in your way? 
Um, they, they regard anything that stands in their way as friction, uh, you know, like these mm-hmm. different firms they look up and be like, how do I reduce this friction? Um, you know, like they, they don't <laughs> yeah. they don't really think too much about like uh, other d- deeper concerns. Well, thank you so right. much, Andrew. It's been a thrill for us to to chat with you. Yeah, me too. Really, <laughs> It was so delightful sitting down, sitting down with you both. And uh, yeah, like really just uh, excited to collaborate and hopefully help more people discover uh, that we can humanize these things. And, uh, you know, congratulations on being married. Like, Thank oh, you. Thank it you. was the last fun thing before everything <laughs> yeah. stopped yeah. being we fun. We got married anymore. on Leap Day right before the pandemic. So, <laughs> Wow. Yeah. It's the last fun thing for a lot of married people. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> 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 